1: My 7 Chakras, episode 129.
2: Forget all ideas of good and bad. Forget your ideas of right and wrong. Forget this course and come with empty hands unto your God.
1: The 7 Chakras, swirling vortices of energy, positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras and now your host, Aditya Jai Kumar.
3: What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here and you are listening to My 7 Chakras, a show where we dive deep into ancient topics like meditation, mindfulness, yoga, energy healing, spirituality and uncover ways, techniques and methods to help you embark on your human revolution. This is a show where we celebrate challenges. We welcome failures because these moments, Action Tribe, allow us to grow. And if you are on the path to transformation, if you feel like you're a part of something larger than yourself, if you feel that you're here on this earth for a particular particular reason, then you are here at the right place at the right time and listening to the right episode because today, Action Tribe, I am so excited, so stoked and so honored to bring you our featured guest for the day, Marianne Williamson. So Marianne, are you ready to inspire?
2: Yeah, I hope so. Sure. Thank
3: you. Wonderful. So Marianne Williamson is an internationally acclaimed author and lecturer. Six of her 10 published books have been New York Times bestsellers. Four of these have been number one. Her books include A Return to Love, which Deepak Chopra called a classic. A Year of Miracles, The Law of Divine Compensation, The Age of Miracles, A Course in Weight Loss, Everyday Grace, A Woman's Worth, Illuminata, and The Gift of Change. She has sold over 3 million copies. The mega bestseller. A Return to Love is considered a must-read. A paragraph from that book, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. This passage is considered an an anthem for those who want to transform their lives. Mary has been a popular guest on television programs such as Oprah, Good Morning America and Charlie Rose. She's appeared 14 times on the Oprah Winfrey show and to date three times on Super Soul Sunday. In 1989, she founded Project Angel Food, a Meals on Wheels program that serves homebound people with AIDS in the Los Angeles area. To date, Project Angel Food has served over 10 million meals. Marianne Also co founded the Peace Alliance and she serves on the board of directors of the results organization working to end the worst ravages of hunger and poverty throughout the world. Sumerian, I've given our listeners a glimpse into the amazing life that you've led so far. But take about a minute and tell us a bit more about your mission.
2: Oh, I don't think of myself as having a mission. I don't think of myself as having a purpose different than anyone else's. I think that words like that actually, they Mm -hmm. rings with a little bit of a grandiosity to me. I think that we are all here as beings of love. That is who we are. That is our deepest creation. We are thoughts in the mind of God. We are children of God by whatever words we use. And we are on this earth to do that which we are. We are love and we are here to love. So I see that as my mission. I see that as my purpose. But I don't see that as my mission or my purpose any more than it's your mission and your purpose or anyone else's. So I think that we are all here as vessels for the same light and the same love and spiritual surrender and devotion and dedication uh, expand our capacity to be of use. To me, it's humble. You know what I'm saying? And I keep it humble.
3: Absolutely. Thanks, for sharing and reminding us of the power of humility. Now, here at My7Chakras, we believe that if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a carefully crafted inspirational quote is definitely worth more than a million dollars picture. So let me ask you, what is your favorite inspirational quote and how does this quote play out in your life?
2: Well, my favorite inspirational quote would be something from A Course in Miracles where it talks about Forget all ideas of good and bad. Forget your ideas of right and wrong. Forget this course and come with empty hands unto your God. I love that. I love the idea of emptying ourselves and allowing God to fill in those empty spaces. I think so much of what we learn in the world is about puffing ourselves up. And even too many times that's given a kind of spiritual mask, but it's still puffing up the ego. And I think that enlightenment is the dismantling of the ego, the taking off of the mask. So I love how that line in the Course says, come with empty hands unto your God. And then you mentioned earlier when you introduced me, there's a quote from my first book, A Return to Love, that has become very well known. It's been misattributed quite often to Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. Um, As much as I would be honored if he had used it in his inaugural address or anywhere else, he simply didn't. It's an urban myth, but I'll be glad to read that to you if you'd like.
3: Would really, really love that. That is one of my favorite quotes. And I've always wanted to ask you about that quote. And we'll definitely go back to it at a later stage. But thanks a lot for sharing this quote. Come with empty hands unto your God. So much of our focus here on Earth is about building and puffing up that ego, like you rightly mentioned. But enlightenment is about going back to the basics. That's wonderfully put. And with that, let's dive in. What inspired you to write your book, Tears to Triumph?
2: Tears to Triumph is about navigating the painful moments in life. Even the happiest life has sad days, and whether in all the great religious and spiritual traditions point to the Phenomenon of human suffering. Uh, Buddha recognized that life is suffering and that began his journey to enlightenment. God sent Moses to deliver the Israelites who were suffering as slaves in Egypt. Jesus suffered on the cross. And those are only three of the great religious transmissions that all speak to the suffering that occurs when we are living outside the light of our connection to God, to love, to mercy, to compassion. And yet, those moments, and we all go through them, where the heart is broken, as with the exodus, and as with the crucifixion leading to the resurrection, as with Buddha's pronouncement of, and realization of suffering, this need not be the end. This is the beginning. And that's why many times when we are in these painful moments, if we do have a spiritual context, you know, you go through something like a divorce, you go through a professional hardship, financial failure, you lose someone that you love. These issues are very, very painful. These moments are very painful, but they're part of life. And what has happened over the last few years is that we have medicalized normal human despair. And people are taking antidepressants now. Mm -hmm. They're taking psychotherapeutic drugs for situations that are not mental illness, for situations that are not served by numbing, that are not served by distraction. They are served by transformation. They are healed by our opening our hearts to the lessons to be learned in these situations, which were always lessons in our capacity to love more deeply. This is particularly disturbing because the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States, has a black box warning that for people 25 years old and younger, antidepressants increase, not decrease the risk of suicidal ideation. And yet people these days are even giving these these drugs to their children. I can't even tell you the stories that I've heard since this book was published. So if you look at at these these times of life, these seasons of life, spiritually, then you realize that just as the body has a natural immune system, so does the psyche. Humanity would not have evolved over thousands and thousands and thousands of years or more. We don't even know at this point Mm -hmm. unless we were imbued with the capacity to take a hit the physical body can absorb quite a bit of injury and disease and heal and go on. So does the psyche. I mean, if you look at some of what people are surviving today uh, around the world and getting up and going on and keeping move, So many of the things that are very high class problems in the larger panoply of what human suffering is, are things which too many of us in the West are treating in ways that actually infantilize us. And we bought into this this propaganda that we're diseased we have a quote unquote disorder and you must treat mm-hmm. this disorder it's an anxiety disorder it's a depressive disorder which automatically turns you into a victim automatically makes you passive in the face of this diagnosis and this diagnosis by the way is a questionnaire it's not a blood test so I think this conversation is very important and what I do on the book with the book is that I talk about how Just as we we can't just fight sickness, we have to proactively cultivate health. Well, we can't just fight depression. We have to proactively cultivate happiness. But that's not cheap happiness. You know, you just take a cheap yellow smiley face and pour it over everything. Real happiness means doing the inner work necessary. For instance, I can't see myself as a victim in a situation and be happy. I can't blame other people for my problems and be happy. I can't fail to forgive and be happy. I can't withhold forgiveness and be happy. I can't fail to atone for my own mistakes and take responsibility for my own mistakes and be happy. I can't be constantly grasping and struggling for something outside myself in space or time and be happy. And if I do, even if I get those things, because as Buddha said, things of this world bring only temporary happiness, then even if I get them, I cannot be happy in time. So the, I thought that by really looking into what the Buddha said, looking into the deeper metaphysical uh, meaning of the story of the Exodus, and of course, the metaphysics of Jesus, that mm. we receive so much deep spiritual food and principle that is actually medicine for the soul, particularly when we're sad.
3: So there you go, Action Tribe. These moments of suffering, these moments of depression, the moments of anxiety need not be the end. In fact, it is actually the beginning. So I love that. Let's talk a bit about the challenge now. According to statistics, 350 million people globally suffer from some form of depression. 16 million adults in the US had at least one major depressive episode. In 2012, the estimated annual cost of depression in the US due to lost productivity and healthcare is $80 billion. In a recent study, 30% of college students recently reported feeling depressed, which really disrupted their ability to function in school. So it's a challenge that affects people of all ages and background. But based on your experience and for the purpose of understanding the challenge better, what is depression and what are some of the symptoms that a person experiences?
2: Well, I reject the picture that you just read to us that is a picture that serves that is a story that is a propagandistic vision that serves the psychotherapeutic pharmacological industrial complex being depressed at various times is part of life there is nobody if you look at the questionnaire as i said depression is not like leukemia there's no blood test depression is not like diabetes depression is not like cancer there's no blood test for this This is a a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And even though there are forces that talk about how there's brain chemistry involved, I would point out that very, very, very few people who have been diagnosed as depressed had their brain chemistry checked first. For that matter, when you meditate, you have changes in brain chemistry, neurotransmitters, uh, neurocircuitry, and so forth. When you talk about how depression has hurt the productivity. This is the problem with our society. We've taken this business model and we have said, if anything keeps you out of the office for three days, that's a problem. No, that's not the problem. The problem is that we don't allow grief. We don't allow emotional permission for grief anymore. That's the problem. The fact that something, quote unquote, broke into your productivity, that financial model. No, I reject that entirely. When it says, oh, people were less productive. When I was growing up, it was understood that grief would occur. Grief is part of that psychic immune system. If you're in a car accident and you have bruises on your body, it is understood that your body will uh, have these bruises and it will take them some time for them to heal. Now, when we've been through a heartbreak, the heart, it, it's, emotionally, we've been bruised. And it will also take time. And the problem is not that it will take time. But the problem is that we are so obsessed with the economic model that we have said, oh, my God, that, that, can, that can cut into an economic bottom line. You have a problem. You have a disease. And disease, an emotional disease, it's, it's like with the physical body. Don't jump to a pill if you don't have to. And, and so the fact that somebody is is depressed for a while, it's not like, oh, those people have a problem and the rest of us don't. Mm-hmm. This is part of life. You know, we live on a planet where the principles on which we, we have built our 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 entire civilization, and particularly our modern culture, are so loveless, basically. They do not posit us as as spiritual beings. They posit us as bodies. They do not posit us as brothers. They posit us as competitors. They do not posit us as living with a Purpose and a mission that we love each other. They posit us as though, uh, as having a purpose and a mission of doing whatever we want to do without any particular reference to whether or not that is good for anything beyond our own selves. So that is where our pain comes from. That is where our existential pain comes from. Our existential pain comes from the fact that it is very difficult for the soul, for the spirit to feel at home here. And then to look at a corner of the society that doesn't even factor spirit into its calculations to give us a solution to this is insane. And when you consider, you know, it's interesting, we we talk about the problem, it's going to cost $80 billion. Well, hello, you've got a a pharmacological industry that will be a trillion dollar industry within 2020. This is Mm -hmm. time for us to be numb. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book, I have a book called The Culture of Depression, I mean, a chapter in the book. How could anybody look at what's happening on the planet today, really look, and not be depressed? How could anybody look at what happened in Bangladesh last night and not be sad? How could anybody look at what happened at the Istanbul airport the other day and not be sad? How could anybody look at what's happening in our environment, the fact that if we don't radically change our ways, our entire ecosystem could implode within 20 years? How could we look at that and not be sad? It is appropriate that we are sad. Well, Sometimes neurosis is not... Best delineated by what upsets you, by but by that which does not upset you. The fact that we're all in this kind of we glorify this emotional flatline now. Like what what would have happened in the United States if the abolitionists had not gotten upset? What would have happened if they could have just taken a chill pill, you know, and like Mm -hmm. you know, known how to just kind of be cool? Susan B. Anthony, the leader of the suffragette movement in the United States today, she would be told, you know, she really might need to look at the fact that wherever she goes, she creates drama everywhere. So. The fact that, we're, that, that we are sensitive souls, it does not mean something's wrong with us. You know, what's happening is the canaries in the mine are falling over, and the, the owner of the mine is saying there's something wrong with the canaries. And this is particularly important for women because we are exquisitely sensitive. We cannot be comfortable with the fact that child poverty is at the level it's at. We cannot be comfortable with the fact that 12,000 children starve on this earth. We cannot be comfortable knowing what's happening to the environment. This is not our weakness. This is not a, a, a disorder we have that somebody needs to give us a pill for. This is our strength.
3: So firstly, thanks a lot for that clarification. Depression is not really a disease like the others. It's just a questionnaire. So we really need to change the way that we look at things. The problem, as you mentioned, is that we are obsessed with the economical model rather than the humanitarian model because we are sensitive souls and that is actually a good thing. Now, you mentioned that human suffering is not a medical issue, but rather a spiritual one. And as you rightly point out, there have been so many leaders in the past, Buddha, who said life is suffering, Jesus, who suffered on the cross. Gandhi, who suffered while adopting the non-violence movement instead of violence, Dalai Lama has gone through periods of intense suffering as well. Uh, could you talk to us about the spiritual significance of suffering?
2: Yes. First, I'd like to go back, if I could, just a little bit. I did not say that depression is not a disease. That is, you know, I'm, I'm not going there. I mean, you know, I, I don't need to say more than I, more than I'm absolutely sure of. And what I am absolutely mm-hmm. sure of is that heartbreak after a divorce is difficult, but it is not a disease. I'm sure that losing your parents or someone that you know, you know, I've lost my parents, I've lost my sister, I've lost my best friend, all of whom died. Those were very difficult times, but they're not a disease. Having your business fail or, fine, or losing all your money is difficult, but it's not a disease. And these things, these are the kinds of things, what I call within that normal spectrum of human suffering, that far, far, far too often today, people are prescribing antidepressants for. And also, I would like to say, Uh, Just in case anyone is listening to this program right now and rethinking their use of antidepressants, I just want to point out that no one should ever, ever, ever get off them by just throwing them in the trash. If anyone is listening to this and rethinking their own use, please only get off them under strict medical supervision because these are powerful drugs and you can't just get off them cold turkey. Okay. Got it. Okay. All right. Now, and now, you were asking, I'm sorry, we were going back and you were asking about the spiritual transmissions?
3: Absolutely. If you could talk to us about the spiritual significance of suffering.
2: Okay. So, the metaphysical idea is that we are beings of love and the planet on which we live is dominated by a consciousness that is not love. It is fear, and the, the metaphysical ideas that expressed in The Course in Miracles is that the absence of love is fear, just like the absence of light is darkness. You get rid of darkness by turning on the light, you get rid of fear by turning on the love. Now, because the planet on which we live is dominated by a consciousness of fear, from the time we're born, even though we are born as purely loving beings, we are taught a mindset that is based on fear, and it it frightens us, and it, it is a fear that just is entrenched in our mindset because of this mental training that we have received. And one word for that mind of fear is ego. Now, enlightenment is the dismantling of the thought system of fear that dominates the planet and the acceptance instead of the thought system of love that is the truth of who we are. So enlightenment is not a learning. Enlightenment is an unlearning. And whether we go through this process in terms of a a religious or spiritual uh, door such as Buddhism or or Judaism or Hinduism or or, or Shintoism or Christianity or Islam or, or any of the great spiritual and religious vortexes, sometimes people go there in very secular ways. You know, all religious and spiritual principle is a kind of spiritual enunciation of what in secular terms is called the hero's journey. It's the inner journey to the truth of who we really are while living in a world that basically repudiates who we really are all the time. And the fact that so many people are upset living here is for that reason. We have developed a mindset that has so cut us off from a memory and a a connectedness to who we are. And if I don't remember who I really am, then I don't remember who you really are. And so we can't find each other. I lose a conscious connection to my source. And thus I lose a conscious sense of why I'm even on the earth. I, I think of myself as just this random piece floating into the chaos of a, of a chaotic universe. And I'm scared of you more than open to love you and receive your love. So, of course, we're upset by this. But it's the mindset that needs to be changed. And that's what... The journey of enlightenment is.
3: Mm -hmm. Now, it seems like there is a normal level of suffering that a person goes through, which is essential to the evolution of spirit. But the challenge occurs when the level of suffering goes beyond control. Is that correct?
2: Well, certainly there are certain forces that would tell you that. There are people who work for certain institutional, um, in certain institutional environments where, and they do mental health work, for instance, and they're told if a person's mother died and they grieve for this long, it's considered normal. If they go over that period, Period for that long, then it's considered abnormal and they should quote unquote seek treatment, which in too many cases means pharmaceuticals. But let's look at that if we may. Who is to say how long you cry over something? If you have 45 tears mm-hmm. to cry, crying 15 of them is not enough. And you know, everybody these days talks about the wisdom of the body. Well, if the body is such a genius, why don't we consider our tears as part of that genius? You know, in the, in the Old Testament, it's symbolized by the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the desert. In the New Testament, it, there's the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. In the story of Buddha, I believe it was 40 days that he went through being tempted by Mara, tempted by the illusions. So that period of time is designated in, in all the great religious stories what we've done, as I was talking about earlier, is because we're all, we're all about go, 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 make it happen. You know, get the business done, make mm-hmm. money, whatever. We don't build into our emotional and psychological perspective that there are times when you simply have to let yourself cry. And too early in the process, people are saying, well, I don't want to wallow in it. And yeah, you don't want to wallow in it. There is a point where processing becomes self-indulgence. There is a point where going through it and talking about it becomes spewing. But it's not as soon as we might think. One of the things that's particularly disturbing about all this is how the pharmaceutical and all of this complex has propaganda it propagandized this issue in such a way as to yeah. convince people that the antidepressants are very important so that people do not commit suicide. But the truth of the matter is our suicide rates have, have gone up, as has as our... Are antidepressant use. So there not only is no evidence that antidepressant use is capping or diminishing the rate of suicide. As I said before, the FDA warns that in people 25 and younger, it actually increases rather than decreases the risk of suicide. And there are many voices asking very legitimate questions these days about some of the people and some of the situations where people were on antidepressants and committed suicide. So, you know, there are obviously very serious mental illnesses, schizophrenia, bipolar, and so forth. And I'm certainly as much of a celebrant as anyone is on the beneficial role that psychotherapeutic drugs can play in such cases. But there are far too many situations, and particularly including young people, where people are just going through the normal seasons of life, but which a society that now so trivializes the inner life does not recognize. And, and throwing throwing pharmaceuticals at us in these cases, particularly when people are very young, is dysfunctional at best and and truly dangerous at worst.
3: So firstly, I love that you mentioned that if people consider the body as a genius, why don't we consider our tears as the genius that will really enable our transformation? There are times, as you mentioned, where we simply must cry, and it might take time, and that we need to allow ourselves that time to cry in order to get to the next stage. So based on your experience, is there a cosmic reason for suffering in our lives? Is it like the universe, I guess, is trying to tell us something?
2: No, the universe, which is the handwriting of God, is pure love. The celestial order is pure love. And when we allow our minds to be conduits for that love, then we remain in that celestial order. And that is where peace is, that is where happiness is. But Every moment, the ego mind would lure us away from lovelessness. We're always tempted to attack each other. We're tempted to defend against each other. We're tempted to judge each other. We're tempted to criticize each other. We're tempted more and more these days to look at relationships as transactions, where we're trying to get what we want from the other person, rather than genuinely Mm -hmm. collaborating with other people so that together we might serve the world. And the mind, when it is not used for the purposes of love, is working against what it was created to do. When you talked about mission, when you talked about purpose, that is our mission. That is our purpose. We are here to love. And just as every cell in the body is appointed, some are appointed to the heart, and some are appointed to the lungs, some are appointed to the stomach. Some are pointed to the brain. We are all guided. When we're in touch with our natural intelligence through love, through prayer, through forgiveness, through spiritual practice, some of us are assigned to the arts. Some of us are assigned to the sciences. Some of us are assigned to literature. Some of us are assigned to business. Some of us are assigned to whatever area is our sort of dharmic path. And many, many people have this nagging suspicion they're wasting their life. They're not doing what they really came here to do. And that's because they, they are wasting their life. They have not awakened to the fact they're only here to love and to, to surrender all that we have and all that we are, that love might use us for love's purposes. And outside the light of that understanding, outside the light of that devotion, outside that, the light of that dedication, we cannot be happy. And, you know, just like we were saying earlier, you can't just fight sickness, you have to cultivate health. You can't just fight depression, you have to cultivate happiness. Happiness is not just the absence of depression. Depression is the absence of happiness. So to awaken to our spiritual purpose on the earth is to awaken to the mindset that cultivates happiness. And to avoid doing that, to withhold forgiveness, to withhold love, to avoid love is to cultivate
3: despair. So thanks a lot for sharing. Now, let's talk about the over-medication of America. And you've alluded to this a while back. People go through stress or depression, are given antidepressant pills that sort of are there to cure uh, those symptoms. And the symptoms seem to go away for a while, but they come back even stronger with so many side effects. So based on your experience, it seems like our suffering has become a profit center for the pharmaceutical industry. And what's the solution to this?
2: When people wake up, you know, I'm not, first of all, Couple things are involved here. Part of what we have in the United States that's problematical, that you I I know you're you're in Canada, for instance. You have a government run healthcare system, we have a market based system. Yeah. The problem with a market based system as opposed to a a government sponsored system is that when it's a government sponsored healthcare system, the investment of the system is for you to only remain medic- on medicine as long as you absolutely need it. In a market-based system, the system is invested in your staying on these drugs as long as possible. So where somebody might take an antidepressant, let's say in Europe, and are told only use these you know, to the extent to which you absolutely need them, in the United States, people would be more often told, uh, expect to stay on these for the rest of your life. And it's just like with any, I think we have to be very aware, you know, during the 1980s, uh, and I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the United States now, medicine can be advertised and is advertised ad nauseum on television. When I was growing up, this was against the law. And during President Reagan's administration, all that was changed with this orgy of deregulation. So, you know, part of when you say what is the solution, I I, I think a universal health care system would certainly help because there wouldn't be so much money to be made on people being drugged, Mm -hmm. right, Right. on these pharmaceuticals. That's number one. Number two is just a lot of awareness. You know, I didn't know until I started – reading up on this, that the FDA has a black box of warning about suicidal ideation of people 25 years old and younger. And I think that, you know, it's been interesting for me as I've re- published this book and as I've been doing media interviews, this is a topic that everybody has a story. Story the other day, somebody told me that her sister-in-law has all four of her ch- teenage children on antidepressants. I was told the other day about a 13-year-old who's been given Welbutrin. I was told about a 16-year-old being given Abilify. Abilify is an antipsychotic drug. And I think that A lot of people simply don't know this. And obviously, why would we put anything in our bodies, such as a pharmaceutical, without looking, you know, look it up on the Internet and see what this is about. But I know that these people all love their children. And I I just think that you you learn things when you learn them. And, And I just think that there has been a real lack of awareness. Uh, about how serious these drugs are and and the price that we're paying. And and you do pay a price because if you don't know how to navigate the turbulent waters of life, you don't know how to navigate life. You know, knowing how to face the tough times and to learn from the tough times, you know, sometimes the pain is how we learn. For instance, let's say I had a breakup once, right? And it was very, very painful for me. And for the first three or four months, all I could talk about or think about when, when the subject came up was what this man had done wrong, right? And I had enough friends to join with me in that jargon and in that conversation. But after about three or four months, I was finally willing and open to see all the ways that I had contributed. Hello, this was not black and white. Relationships rarely are. And that was very important. And it was a whole other layer of pain, too. But I had to see what my behavior had been. And I had to work through all that. I had to atone for my own mistakes and give him and forgive him for his. Otherwise, I could not go on. Now, these times like that, we all know that we have all been there. I cried tears over realizing the mistakes. I cried tears over the, the breach between the potential for love that was there, the reality of love that was there, and the fact that both of our personalities blocked the experience. But in those tears, I learned things. And I learned in such a way that after that relationship, I would never take love for granted the way I had. I would never treat it like a toy the way I had. I would be more responsible. I would be more humble. I would be more grateful. I would be more forgiving. I would be more aware of what love feels like to a man if I had not gone through those things. And this has been true for me also in terms of professional setbacks and failures that I've had. And also one of the stories I tell in the book is how when I was a young woman in my late 20s, I had a a personal tragedy in my life. And I had mine was a year. I mean, I I was a year in tears, basically. I mean, this was what by any interpretation would be called a, uh, a clinical nervous breakdown. And I worked with a brilliant psychiatrist and Definitely very, very deep into the Course in Miracles, which was a a beautiful combination, I must say. Um, I certainly eschewed drugs. I did not want um, drugs. I I remember telling him, if I want to do drugs, I can get much better ones than these by myself. And after that year, it felt to me like my skull had been like a Greek vase that had exploded into thousands of pieces. And slowly Mm -hmm. but surely, it had come back together. And something was in my head at the end of that year that had not been there before. I started my career as a speaker not long thereafter. And I've read stories of people who were in comas or went through traumas, at the end of which they had talents and abilities and clarity about things that they had not had before. So I think that that time in my life was a very sacred time. You know, St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. This is not, you know, we give these clinical Cold clinical terms, you have depressive disease, you need treatment, we give you give you pills. Wait right there. For those of us from a spiritual perspective, wait right there. Do I have a serious mental illness? Because if I don't have a serious mental illness, you know, and, and there are all those people who say, oh, no, it's an illness. But if you have not shown me on a blood mm. test, like I said, the diagnosis is based on a questionnaire. And anybody who who looks at that questionnaire of what depression is, clinical depression, I defy you to, to say I've never been through any of this. Most people have.
3: So firstly, the fact that you mentioned that in those tears, you learned so much. I think that's really powerful. Thanks a lot for sharing those stories. Now, let's talk about the transcendence now. Is there a spiritual solution to the experience of suffering and depression? Are there any spiritual principles that we could use to help us transform?
2: Absolutely. So let's say you you are depressed and you go to see your therapist. From a spiritual perspective, the first question a spiritually minded therapist would say is, who are you not forgiving? Because if you come to to a regular therapist and you say this horrible thing happened that horrible thing happened i got i went through a bitter divorce my husband left me after 25 years okay this is very painful but once again it's not a mental illness a spiritual perspective mm-hmm. would say two main things number one you need to allow for the pain you need to allow for the tears you need to respect the process of your healing and number two you need you will never get past this if you do not seek to forgive And part of forgiveness will be taking a very deep look at your part, all the things that are yours. It will be painful for you to do the work that's going to be necessary to atone for your own mistakes and to forgive him for his, all of these things. So I think that when you look at these things from a spiritual perspective, and that's what I talk about in the book, you know, Buddha has an eightfold path, right living, right speech, right livelihood, right effort. In the Exodus, it's when God gave the Ten Commandments, the terms of the of the covenant, to the Israelites. That's the point. It's not like you, you are the victim of a disease. It's that you are the victim of a loveless mindset, and you can become victor by this experience catapulting you into the transformation of your thinking so that your thoughts no longer cause you to suffer. And you have made, you know, Buddha... Realized life was suffering, but this begins his journey to enlightenment and the consciousness of nirvana. The Israelites are enslaved, and this begins their journey to the promised land. Jesus suffers through the crucifixion and ends up resurrected. That's the point. The point is what happens when God plays his hand. So the point is enlightenment, nirvana, resurrection promised land, self-actualization, happiness, inner peace. They're all the same thing.
3: So a couple of really powerful things that you shared. You need to allow for the pain and the tears. You need to respect the process. You need to do the work, even though it might be painful, but you need to do the work and ask yourself these powerful questions. Like you mentioned, who are you not forgiving? I think that's really amazing. Action Tribe, to access the show notes for today's episode, visit my7chakras.com forward slash 129. That's my7chakras.com forward slash 129. As someone who has faced as much disappointment as most people, I've come to trust, not that events will always unfold exactly as I want, but that I will be fine either way. Action Tribe, this is a powerful quote by Marianne Williams and today's guest, Action Taker, I know that you're going through a challenge in your life right now, whether it's financial, health, relationships, educational or any other, and you might not have a clear picture at this point of how things are going to turn out. Maybe it feels like everything and everyone is against you and no matter how much you plan, Things are just not manifesting the way you had visualized they would. In such a situation, remember the truth. As Marianne said, you are powerful beyond measure. And no matter how things turn out, you will be fine either way. So Marianne, take us back to a time when you faced a major challenge. How did you look at the situation? And then finally, how did you overcome that obstacle?
2: First of all, I think when you are in a period of depression, and there is such a thing as depression. I'm not saying depression doesn't exist. And there is a phenomenon, whether you call it a disease, I have a problem with the medicalization. But there is, I have been very sad in my life. I've had times I say, so I was really depressed about this or that. But I've had two times in my life, which would, by any definition, be termed clinical depression. Number one, it's happening, and you have to make room for it. You, you can't, just the, the question is not, how do I numb this immediately? The question cannot be, how do I get rid of this pain? The question is, what is the meaning of this pain, and what does it have to teach me? Nietzsche said, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. When I was a young woman, what did it teach me? It taught me to stop treating life like it was a game. It taught me to stop playing with life. It taught me to stop being irresponsible with my feelings, other people's feelings, relationships, life that, you know, (laughs) grow up little girl, because in my cavalier, youthful immaturity, I hurt myself and I hurt others. That's what it taught me. And I had to cry a lot of tears. Now, the second time of my, what the world would call clinical depression, I had to forgive a lot of people. I had to forgive myself. I had to look very clearly at where things had gone wrong. I had to remember, you know, in The Course in Miracles, it makes it very clear. The only failure in life is something that we fail to learn from. That's the only real failure. And I, you know, it, it, if you had been through something painful, the prayer becomes, let this not have been in vain. Let me somehow be a better person because of this. You know, we, you and I were talking about humility before. I think that that is one of the things that failure teaches you. It gives you humility, makes you much less judgmental, you know talking about that time when I was young and irresponsible, there have been times in the last few years that I would look at young women who were kind of letting a little too much hang out and sexualizing their appearance in public and behaving in a flirtatious way that I didn't think was so cool, and I would catch myself, and I would be about to form a judgmental thought, and then I would remind myself, Marianne, you are so <laughs> much worse. So sometimes when you have allowed yourself... Um, Not only to recognize what you've done so that you then are not as judgmental of other people. Also, I think suffering gives you x-ray vision into other people's suffering. I have wondered uh, when the United States invaded Iraq, the protest on the part of the American people was really, for most Americans, hardly more than a whimper. We so easily acquiesced to the war fever propaganda at the time. Why is it that so many Americans did not allow themselves to go to this place? We are going to rain fire on thousands of men, women and children, hopeless in their homes, helpless, unable to protect themselves or their children. And these people did nothing to us and their leader may or may not have weapons of mass destruction, but Americans do business with leaders who have weapons of mass destruction every day, and with leaders who kill their own people and so forth. What do you think the Chinese did in Tibet? What? How desensitized we have become to our own suffering that we could so easily desensitize ourselves to the suffering of others. Another thing it gives you is, as I said before, I've never come out of a period of deep suffering not with some level of greater capability you know you have a choice to make when you've you know fallen down in life and we've all fallen down in life we've all had those hard times in life But you have an existential decision to make. Am I going to be a victim of this or am I going to be a victor? You know, they often say, are you going to be bitter or are you going to be better? Those are your two choices because you're not going to be the same person on the other side of this. And if you say, I'm willing to open my heart, I'm going to open my mind, I'm going to see what really happened. Even if you take it something where it had nothing to do with your behavior or anyone else's. Like I said, my parents have died. My sister has died. My best friend has died. What did that teach me? Let me tell you something. I know viscerally now not just intellectually, I know viscerally, this ride does not last forever. Any given day, you have friends and family who you love, suck the juice out of it. That's what I learned. I learned to cherish life more because I have a a visceral understanding. It's temporary, our physical incarnation. And having lost to death people that I love is what taught me that on a cellular level.
3: Well, thanks a lot for sharing. Now, as you look back at life, what is that one major life lesson that you'd like to teach our listeners?
2: Being loving is the most important thing that love is what matters and everything else is nothing in comparison
3: so first of all thanks a lot for sharing those moments with us sharing those stories with us a couple of really powerful things here which I just have to restate you mentioned that when someone is going through a phase of suffering the first step is to realize that it's happened and not to ignore it asking why would help and finding out what is that thing or that question or that message that the suffering is trying to convey to us you also mentioned that the only failure in life is something that we fail to learn from, which I feel is, you know, really powerful. And telling ourselves that let this not have been in when suffering gives us an insight into someone else's suffering, as you also shared. And when someone comes out of suffering, there's a good chance that he or she will come out with a greater capability because that experience, those moments change the person forever is that right?
2: Yes, very much. I thank you for the honor you show me by so clearly understanding and reflecting back to me. Absolutely.
3: Thanks a lot. Action Tribe, as you head towards achieving your goals because of how large your goals might be or your vision might be because of how detailed uh, your plan might be because of the massive change that you want to see in the world, the love that you want to infuse your communities, the people around you with, sometimes you might feel a bit demoralized and a bit down thinking of where you are versus where you want to be. You might ask yourself, in the world, will I ever get there? Remember that there is power in one. Take the first step. Think about what's the next best expression of your vision. Ask yourself, what is that one question you can ask to move to the next level? And in such a situation, remember the words of Marianne, who once so eloquently said, The law of divine compensation posits that this is a self-organizing and self-correcting universe. The embryo becomes a baby. The bud becomes a blossom. The acorn becomes an oak tree. Clearly, there is some invisible force that is moving every aspect of reality to its next best expression think about what is your next best expression so Marianne what is your life's purpose at this point in time
2: our life's purpose if you are talking about anything that is deep and authentic you're talking about something which is changeless because the real you is changeless my purpose now is what my purpose was is what my purpose will be and that is to try to be the most loving version of myself of which I'm capable to, to rise to the occasion as, you know, <laughs> not just some of the time, but all of the time. To take responsibility for my behavior, not just some of the time, but all of the time. To try to be loving, forgiving, and compassionate, not just some of the time, but all of the time. To more and more embody the loving self that dwells within me and to heal of the wounds that would, would keep me from doing so.
3: That is really amazing. Thanks a lot for sharing your purpose with us. Marianne, do you mind if I read a passage from your amazing book, A Return to Love?
2: Thank you. I would be honored.
3: Wonderful. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous. Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So, Marianne, I've been wanting to ask you this question for such a long time, but under what circumstance did you come up with this beautiful and powerful thought? Is there a story behind this?
2: The actual paragraph of our deepest fear, which talk are you talking about? I'm confused.
3: The actual paragraph.
2: Well, that book, Return to Love, is subtitled Reflections on the Principles of a Course in Miracles. So, what people like most about that paragraph, I can't take personal credit for The idea that we're afraid of the light, i.e. the divine within us, more than we're afraid of the dark. The idea that the darkness, the ego, is our perverse comfort zone. You know, it's like when Moses went to deliver the Israelites and said, we can go now. They didn't jump up and down with joy. They were like, oh, whoa, 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 because at least we know we'll survive here. You want us to make a run for freedom, but we're going to be in the desert. We don't know where we're going. We don't know if we'll be fed. That's a very important point. So the ego mind, which knows it will be dissolved if you accept the truth of who you are, would actually have us believe that making a run for greatness is what is to be feared. And so we always have a a choice between that sharp pain of self-discovery or this dull ache that would last forever. So I, you know, I was writing about those principles and thinking about those principles. And I always say about that book, if you like that paragraph, you should read the whole book because there's so many paragraphs. But I like to think that, you know, even though I'm honored that so many people have been served by that paragraph, I like to think that there are a lot of paragraphs in my book, including my newest one, that will serve them as well.
3: Well, thanks a lot for sharing those powerful thoughts, those ideas, and those amazing stories that you've shared with us. This has been incredibly powerful. And I'm sure everyone listening to this episode right this very moment would agree as well. And with that, we arrived at the last and final round for today's show, the wisdom round. Now, this is a rapid fire round that contains... Four questions so that our listeners can take note and take action. Are you ready? Yes, of course. What is the best advice that you have ever received?
2: I don't know if it was about advice, but my parents really demonstrated generosity. So they never said, be generous. But they demonstrated something that my mother did. You know how when you give clothes to Salvation Army or someplace, she mm-hmm. would make us, if, you, if we had a bag of clothes that we were going to give away, she would make us go through. And if something needed to be hemmed, we would hem it. If something needed a button, we would find a button and sew the button back on. And I remember my mother saying, the people who are shopping for these clothes are already having to buy secondhand clothes. At least make them very, very nice. I never forgot that. And in if, if, if those days, when I was a kid, people would come to the door getting money for UNICEF or whatever, right? And I never heard my mother say my husband gave at the office and slammed the door. She would say, my husband gave at the office, but hold on just a moment, I'll give you something as well. And I always saw my father, I never saw my father pass a beggar and not give them something. So it wasn't overt advice, but it was a demonstration that showed me an aspect of conscious living. So
3: name a personal habit that you'd like to encourage our listeners to adopt. Meditation. Wonderful. I'll have that in. Marianne, what does your morning ritual look like?
2: I wake up in the morning. I am a coffee person. I make sure to do meditation, to do the Course in Miracles, Transcendental Meditation, whatever my work is that morning, inspirational reading before I read the newspaper or turn on television or anything like that. I seek to prepare myself inwardly to take time with God. You know, if you wake up in the morning and you take a bath, you take a shower... You get the dirt off your body before you go out into the day. But if you don't meditate, if you don't pray, if you don't center yourself spiritually, then even though you might have purified your body, you're still taking all the stress. Not only your stress, but everybody's stress. Today, we're taking the stress of everybody in Bangladesh. day before, we are taking the stress of everybody in Istanbul. It's very difficult to ground yourself in the craziness of the world and seek peace. You have to take some time every day in which you you disengage from the craziness of the world. That's what meditation time is. Then you go back out there. We're not here to ignore the darkness. We're here to transform the darkness. So you find your peace. Then you go back into the world where you are assigned, how you are assigned. There's a prayer in the Course in Miracles every morning. You are to say, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? And then you go out into the world to be someone who hopefully is able to contribute to the peace and to the love that will heal the human race and all living things.
3: Wow. Name a book that you'd like to recommend for our listeners.
2: Other than Tears to Triumph, um, Tears to Triumph, Spiritual Direct from Suffering to Enlightenment, A Course in Miracles, surely. Um, There was a wonderful novel last year that I read called The Book of Strange New Things by Michelle Faber, Letters to a Young Poet by Roca, which most people have read those are what come to mind right now.
3: Well, thanks a lot for sharing. And once again, Action Tribe, to access today's show notes, visit my 7 forward slash 129. That's my 7 forward slash 129. So, Marianne, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been awesome. Before you go, tell us one thing that you're really grateful for today and tell us the best way we can find you.
2: What I'm grateful for today is what I'm grateful for every day, and that is my magnificent daughter. And where you can find me is at Marianne.com, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E.com. I I, uh, live stream every Wednesday night. The link is available for free for 72 hours. And if people join my email list on Marianne.com, they'll know if I'm traveling to their area um, and so forth.
3: So there you go, Action Tribe. The name of the book is Tears to triumph the spiritual journey from suffering to enlightenment and as we've learned today suffering pain depression as a phenomena is not new to the human experience all major religions buddhism christianity judaism every religion in the world has prophets leaders visionaries who have gone through suffering but the solution to suffering is not hiding it It's not taking these depressants, it's not taking these tablets or these pills, but looking at suffering from a spiritual perspective and then using these spiritual principles to really transcend the suffering and transform your life. So in case you want to learn more, pick up the book which is available on Amazon and all major book retailers to learn more about Marianne. Go to Marianne.com, we'll have the link up in the show notes, but Action Tribe. This is the moment where you need to take action. Thanks a lot for listening to today's show. If you've listened so far, it really means that you are committed to transforming your life and learning more about how you can change not only yourself, but the people around you as well. And today we've learned how to transcend beyond suffering, to first embrace it, and to realize that this pain, this suffering, this depression is in your life for a particular reason, and it is by acknowledging these moments, these times, that you will ultimately be able to transcend beyond it.
2: Thank you very, very much.
1: You are listening to My 7 Chakras. Go to my, Chakras.com. Download your free gift, get inspired, and take action. Transform your life today.